All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. This is October 18th, 2016. And uh, as I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And you can go to miningstocks.com to learn more about Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. There I have uh, very important news for the companies that I cover. Uh, the press releases are all there and uh, a lot of good commentary in terms of uh, geopolitical and market commentary from various sources. Uh, links to those sources are available also on the homepage of miningstocks.com. So you can go there to sign up for my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and you can also sign up for Chen's Lin, Chen Lin's newsletter called What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Uh, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show and making it uh, one of the more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel. Also, I want to encourage you to continue sending along your questions and comments, criticisms and praises to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. And uh, also encourage you to follow me on Twitter, uh, jtaylormedia. Uh, I want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show, New Legacy Gold, Novo Resources, Klondike Gold, RN Resources, and Ariane Phosphate. All of these companies uh, that are sponsors to this show are recommendations in my newsletter. In fact, I really uh, those are really the companies that I have as sponsors or companies that I have done some research on and like to start with. I uh, don't want to have companies that I dislike as sponsors for this show. Uh, and uh, my number one and number two largest personal holdings uh, actually are Novo Resources and RN Resources. And both of those companies, as well as Klondike Gold, will be presenting their stories at the Metals Investor Forum in Vancouver on November 12th and 13th. And that's at the uh, uh, Hotel Downtown in Vancouver. I'm especially excited about the fact that the brilliant and creative thinking geologist Quentin Henning, Dr. Henning, will be at the show to present the Novo story. Uh, Dr. Henning had worked for Newmont Mining in the past uh, when he was really, at that point in time, seeking a nether Witwatersrand type deposit, you know, the Witwatersrand in South Africa. Uh, it's an amazing gold uh, deposit, uh, something like 40% or a very large percentage of all the gold that's ever been mined in the history of the, of the, uh, of the earth has come from that one area in South Africa. So to find another one, of course, would be, a, would be indeed a, a, very, uh, a very likely uh, endeavor. And uh, it looks as though Dr. Henning may have found something very similar, in fact, uh, at least geologically similar. Now it's going to take some time to 
to determine whether or not uh, its economics are anywhere nearly as good, but so far so good. Some very good, very positive uh, results have come from the um, from the exploration work, development, and the uh, and the assays that have come forward. Uh, it's it's looking very very positive. So I'm really excited that Dr. Henning uh, will be at the Metals Investor Forum on November 12th and 13th, and um, he he will be on this show again sometime in the near future as well. But if you could actually make it to that uh, to that event, I think you wouldn't be uh, you would be very happy to meet up with Dr. Henning and and realize what a fine. Uh, what a fine man he is, and also, uh, well, he's just a highly acclaimed geologist. Among his peers, very, very highly acclaimed. I haven't found anyone uh, anyone that has anything but highest praise for Dr. Henning and his work in the past. So to, um, to go to that to show, to sign up for that show, it's free, but you do need to sign up ahead of time because the space is limited. Go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com. Dot com, or you can also go to jtaylormedia.com. Just simply click on the Metals Investor Forum near the top of the page to sign up. It just uh, requires your name and uh, email, and I believe maybe a personal address, and and then you're um, and then you're signed up, and you can attend this conference downtown Vancouver, November twelfth uh, and thirteenth. By the way, tomorrow afternoon. Um, uh, I will be posting an interview I did yesterday with two of the speakers at the Metals Investor Forum, uh, Gwen Preston and Jordan Roy Byrne. Now, Gwen has three exciting new stock recommendations that she made, and, and she will tell you about them once it's posted. You can listen to it at, uh, at uh, jtaylormedia.com. Uh, and also, Jordan posted a couple of his favorite companies as well. He, he talks about them, but he also provides some very insightful ideas about the markets and where they are headed, and uh, I expect to have those interviews, as I say, posted tomorrow afternoon, hopefully, uh, but at least by the end of the day, uh, by the end of tomorrow, it should be, uh, they should all be posted there at J. Taylor Media. Uh, so to listen to those interviews, I hope that you'll go there. Also, uh, go to miningstocks.com. Go to miningstocks.com as well uh, to catch up with the news that uh, is uh, being uh, the news that's related to the companies that I follow in my newsletter. Some very exciting things, uh, assays, and other important news that comes forward for the companies that I have selected for my newsletter. That, in my view, uh, are the best ones out there. The ones that I that I am highly recommending, and some of them, of course, will be at this Metals Investor Forum. Also, uh, I have links to some very important geopolitical and market news that, uh, from various sources at miningstocks.com. So you might want to go there to check it out. And, of course, you can also sign up for my newsletter or Chen's newsletter there as well. I've titled today's show, A New High for Gold in Two Years. Well, a week or so ago, BlackRock's Heidi Richardson talked on Bloomberg um, about um, her views on gold, and they're very, very bullish. And this is from BlackRock, no less. So mainstream um, the mainstream financial entity that has turned very, very bullish on gold. But with all due respect to, uh, to Heidi Richardson, our guests are every bit as competent, in my view, to opine on gold and other financial markets as Miss Richardson is. So I will be most certainly um, really looking forward to talking to to Michael Oliver as well as Don Cox, uh, to my two guests today. Rich, uh, Rick Rule had been expected to be with us but his very busy schedule precluded him from joining us today. However, he is scheduled to be on my show next Tuesday. 
Now, Michael Oliver will be with us to provide his usual insights today, but Michael said that he'd like to talk a bit more about big picture stuff today and how the various markets that he follows are all interrelated. It should be a very interesting story, so I I hope that you'll uh, stay with me uh, just a few minutes. uh, We'll be talking to Michael. Then at around half past the hour, uh, as I mentioned, Don Cox will be with me. Don, for the first time, he is a highly acclaimed financial analyst who has won many awards for his work um, in the financial markets, his his success over the years. A very well-known household name, certainly in Canada, maybe less known down here in the States, but nonetheless, um, very well known, very famous, and and very, uh, we're very honored to have him with us, and he'll be joining me at about a half past the hour. As with Michael, Don sees the interrelationships between various markets, as well as how social changes are impacting the ruling elites, and those uh, pressures, uh, how they may indeed impact the markets that we invest in and that we talk about here on this show every week. It should be a very interesting discussion with Don Cox, so I hope that you'll stick around half past the hour to listen to him. Meantime, we do have to take our first commercial break, but don't go away because, as I just noted, Michael Oliver will be with us. Uh, he's, he wants to talk about the great unraveling of the financial markets that he sees being in the process of unfolding at this point in time. And this may not necessarily be a happy message, but it is what it is, and uh, it just makes sense that we best prepare the best we can uh, to be ready for whatever comes our way. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Michael Oliver right after the break. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. Novo Resources focuses on the exploration and development of gold projects. Its flagship asset is the Beaton's Creek Gold Project in Western Australia, where it is currently processing a 30,000-ton bulk sample. Novo also controls 100% interest in the Blue Speck Gold Antimony Project, where it is conducting a 10,000-meter drill program. The company has over $7 million in cash and enjoys strong shareholder support from the likes of Eric Sprott and Newmont Mining. It trades in Canada and the U.S. under the Symbols NVO and NSRPF, respectively. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. 
Welcome back to Sharing Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me today, not just for a couple of minutes, but for a little longer period of time, Michael Oliver. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. It's great to be back, Jay. Always good to have you with me, and uh, it's always good to tell my listeners that your website is olivermsa.com, olivermsa.com. Michael, in a message you sent to me earlier today, you noted that your service, that is uh, MSA, likes to treat markets as being linked and mutually uh, distorted, and mutually distorted by the Federal Reserve, by other central banks. You told me now that more than ever, you can simply... Look at the. You can't simply look at the given price charts and make any sense of it. You really have to look at the interrelated parts or the interrelated markets. Can you can you expound on that a little bit more? Yeah, I uh, MSA began in, in 1992, and we primarily our subscribers are high net worth investors or mostly institutions of varying sizes. So we provide private technical input, but of a different kind than what you think of when you think of technical analysis, which usually entails price chart analysis. Mm -hmm. And in particular, in the last five years, uh, central banks, not just the Federal Reserve, but the ECB, Japan, the OJA, and so forth, have exerted extraordinary pressures and measures to create pricing in various markets, particularly in equities and in debt markets pricing that they thought was appropriate would achieve what they thought from their academic perspective would you know produce the great world and they've been doing it and doing it and doing it for five years now and and it had impact has greatly impacted equity prices i think especially in the u.s in terms of higher than they otherwise would be Mm -hmm. Uh, it has especially affected debt market yields to lower than they otherwise would be or Mm -hmm. prices of bonds higher than they otherwise would be but it's also affected other markets uh, because when you generate a move in one market you tend to take investor capital that might go somewhere else and it'll go to that that happy market right investors you know they go for the feel good and right for instance in 2011 when a lot of this stuff really began in earnest commodities peaked and we noticed it at the time, of course, that's when gold topped in late 2011. But it took an excruciating amount of time for that top to really take hold and then the collapse to, to begin. And in fact, gold didn't really collapse till 2013, mm-hmm. April through June. Uh, and many other commodities were peaking during that period as well. So were the emerging markets, which, as you know, the emerging market uh, stock markets were the popular place to be. Uh, and they did a lot better than the S&P in the initial part of the recovery after the bear market. Mm-hmm. But they joined commodities and went down. But it took a long time, an arm-wrestling period of time, to finally roll over so that investors placed their money where the Fed wanted them to place it, namely in uh, the developed market stock indexes, the DAX index, mm-hmm. uh, S&P 500, and so forth. And they got their money's worth. Uh, but that's ended. Uh, most of these developed market indices are well off their 2015 highs. Only the U.S. blue chips are the exception, and they're not doing all that great. Uh, S&P Today, for example, traded where it was in July and May of 2015, and only about 2% higher than it was at the peak in 2014. Mm-hmm. So, uh, when, But the main point here is that looking at price charts, especially at trend change times, is usually the worst place to look because price is the last technical indicator to provide you with the information that I've topped. By the time price is obvious that it's topped, in the case of stocks or bottom, in the case of commodities, uh, you're so far off the high or the low that you've missed a good chunk of the move. So our work focuses primarily on the momentum of price, 
particularly long-term momentum, annual momentum and quarterly. And we see the evidence there first. But the other point is the interrelationship between these markets. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, when equities top out or don't perform well, investors need a place to go. And that they're denied yield by the central banks. They've been denied yield for several years now, which hurts a lot. And therefore, they're really antsy about finding a place to get return on their capital or yield. Uh, and commodities were, as we expected, the place to be this year. Now, it's not all commodities yet. It's, it's primarily been led by gold and oil, for example, which even despite the recent pullback in gold is well well up on the year compared to, for example, the S&P 500. There's mm-hmm. no comparison in, in return. And oil's up vastly on the year. Um, we see the evidence that the play for 2017, for example, which is developing and taking its excruciating amount of time, are the food commodities. Well, that would be the grains and the meats. Uh, they look like the last to bottom and probably a great place to be for next year. Uh, if you're not early long oil and gold, you've missed a good chunk of it. But those markets look like they're going to be the late comers in the commodity arena. And uh, that will, once that occurs, it's our belief that such indices as the Bloomberg Commodity Index, which there's some ETFs on it, for example, which is a basket of all commodities, will <clears throat> in turn spark a collapse in the bond market. Uh, that has not yet occurred. We've seen we've been measuring the bonds, the bunds in Germany, and the uh, JGBs, the Japanese government bonds. And while we see them as having probably topped, they've not really triggered the kind of structures that will flush them out. That will really uh, produce higher yields and lower prices in those markets. They're playing with the numbers, but they're not breaking them yet. But that's been an arm wrestling match as well. For instance, bonds peaked many months ago in price. But they mm-hmm. won't collapse yet, and I think that's coming. I suspect the interrelationship there that will cause that is that the Fed and the ECB, who have been begging for two percent inflation, are going to get that times three, you know, or mm-hmm. four, and mm-hmm. it's going to come when the food commodities join with gold and oil, and next year start making a lot of noise, and that's when you're going to get, I think, finally some fruition. So investors who've been placing bets maybe in, in alignment with what I've described, like topping stocks or bottoming commodities, mm-hmm. and have been frustrated by the zigzag with the dormancy, uh, mm-hmm. I think they're going to be rewarded because the evidence continues to mount that that's the direction that we're headed. Yeah. Well, I think I saw somewhere today, Michael, that uh, I guess it's the CPI they look at or whatever index they're, they're looking at for that 2% number that we've had 11 straight months where it's at that level or slightly above it. So the Fed is having a harder time now justifying not allowing rates to rise by pushing and you know suppressing mm-hmm. the rates by pushing money into the system, right? So they're constantly doing that, manipulating the, the, rate, the rate and, uh, in my, my view, destroying capitalism because how can you have capitalism if you don't allow price discovery of capital? It beats me. And maybe they right. don't really want capitalism. I don't know what they're... I, what I suspect they're, what they're, that's a good... What their issue is, but so you so you you have this um, this two percent suppression, and you got you know all of these happy talkers t- saying that oh the economy is going to you know finally we'll get that uh, that lift off that we've been looking for from all this Keynesian stimulus, and yet it doesn't come, doesn't come, doesn't come, and yet they have to keep pretending that it's there because they don't want rates to rise for the wrong reason, right? They want the Federal Reserve and the central banks to be in control, or at least people to think they're in control. I, I'm just wondering, Michael, if, you know, is the Fed really in control, or might the Fed's hand 
be called. It, it might have to allow rates to rise just simply because of economic pressures. Well, the, the bond market rates have, have risen, uh, you know, 10 and especially 30 year have risen uh, markedly in the last several months. Yeah. Uh, not enough to precipitate the major collapse in bond market pricing and, and sharp rise in yield. We think the yield, uh, for example, which has been either side of 2.5% on the 30-year bond, could jump to 35 to 4 now, that would be an earthquake, uh, and we think that could happen in a matter of months once certain levels are violated, and they haven't been violated yet. They've been playing with them, I'll tell you that. We measure them week by week, and it's, it's interesting what they do intra-week and intra-month and then hot-foot it back above it by the end of the week and so forth. But, uh, yeah, I do think that the markets now are in control and transitioning, and when they fully transition, namely stocks top, uh, Europe already has, Japan has, but the U.S. clearly does, and bonds top, and commodities um, turn up. At that point, it, it's full. It's a full court press against the central banks. They they will be uh, washed to the side. No question in my mind. I mean, just think about it. Uh, you know, these these mutual these uh, these pension funds and the like have to go out, uh, and, you know, and take extremely risky assets. And um, now, all of a sudden, to the extent that they're still in these fixed fixed rate instruments they're going to find themselves underwater like like mad and then then they're going to be out on the on you know taking risks in places they never should have ever been taking risks it's going to be a carnage in the in the for the i think for the pension funds you talked about that some time ago that's that's one of the next levels of the crisis is the pension fund crisis because yeah. of the demographics and the failure to have yield to to find yield without taking extreme risk and uh, thanks to the central banks and thanks to it occurring over a period of years, not just a few quarters, but this is this is getting it straining now. It's years of this. Uh, the uh, Calpers uh, came up with uh, some one percent or something gain last year, and they need seven and a half. Good lord! You, know, you can't you can't do that two three years in a row. You have a disaster. So, All right, uh, but well, you, know, yeah. you know, Michael, we have a we have a good friend who has been in the teacher a teacher in New York City for a number of years and, and a fantastic pension. You know, and he's he's guaranteed supposedly quote unquote guaranteed seven or eight percent, uh, you know, annual returns, but uh, you know that's not in the market. There's no way in the market. So what they've done is they've uh, put the the taxpayers of New York City on the hook to uh, they're going to just raise our taxes, I guess, to the point where mm-hmm. they can pay the teachers' unions and the and the fire and the police and whatever else. So it's well, it's uh, a tax rebellion, but you know, that's always a possibility. But uh, I don't know. You know, the the pressures are becoming extraordinary. And everywhere, uh, especially with investors and uh, those who have capital. <laughs> There's a lot of Americans don't anymore. Uh, no. But uh, I even think the one percenters are about to face a lot of pain. Uh, they've enjoyed the ride because the banks have paid for it. But I yeah. think that which they're sitting in is, is not going to be going the, the way they want. And I think it could become pretty sudden. It's been slow in arm wrestling for, the le- for this year, except for some jolts up in oil and gold, for example. But I think once the food commodities join in, uh, it's going to be... Uh, headline-type material that uh, inflation's back, but it isn't 2%. Yeah, you talk about the arm wrestling. It reminds me, you, you also use colorful uh, images like plate tectonics, and, it, you know, these plates grind against each other very slowly. You don't realize they're moving hardly at all, and then all of a sudden, kaboom, you have an earthquake. You mm-hmm. have, all of a sudden, uh, you reach that limit of stress when the thing can't take it anymore, and then you have a sudden unraveling. And that's what I think you see coming. And, and I have to ask you, you you talk about the, I think the JGB was, was what you were most concerned about, the, the, the um, 
uh, perhaps the that's the Japanese long bond, right? And mm-hmm. and that looked mm-hmm. very precarious to you. Is that still the case? Well, and if so that goes, so, so do the bonds. And I think they'll all three go together. They're all the three safest, quote unquote, most manipulated long-term debt instruments, uh, U.S. German, Japanese, and they've pretty much been on this, under the same sort of influence and pressure by their central banks to get yields down. Uh, I mean, there's some differences. We didn't go negative like Germany and Japan, but we got uh, close, you know, as close as we could probably ever get. Um, but I think they'll come unravel together, and I, I, I think the three central banks will all be quite frightened, and it'll be a sudden event, and I, uh, you know, I suspect investors will cease to have any uh, give any credence to what the central banks say at some point right now we're still hanging on to every word Yellen says and by the way I think last week she gave a uh, or earlier this week gave a speech somewhere and and I think she was the one or maybe it was another fed member that three uh, percent would be okay yeah uh, before yeah. they got concerned about raising rates uh, so you know they're yeah, they fudge. They move the goalposts they move the goalposts all the, goal the time posts. I think that was yeah. the point of that three so. yeah yeah, it's uh, it's whatever it takes to keep in control and keep people believing that the Fed right. has the magic wand, and uh, which is, of course, the big lie. Well, I can't let you go before we ask you about gold. BlackRock's Heidi Richardson, recently I saw her, I think it was on Bloomberg, and she's talking very bullishly about gold. She's talking about the possibility, uh, I think in her view, a probability of new highs for gold within two years. Is that something you think could happen? I think she's probably wrong on the two years. I think it would be sooner than that. Uh, I don't. I think incrementalism. Uh, I'm a believer in chaos theory, and, and once certain pressures occur, they occur at a seemingly incremental pace. They get more and more, and then suddenly there's a snapping point. Just like how stocks collapse sometimes, and and uh, gold exploded out of its lows of last year rapidly after February, uh, when it went through 11.40, it was all of a sudden went 200 more dollars in a few months. So, I think the same type of snap effect, sudden change, can occur. So that if gold is going to make a new high, it's not going to crawl its way up there. I think there'll be some event type, uh, macro event that will spark gold to rapidly gain ground. Uh, yeah. Perhaps even hundreds, $100 a day type ground. Uh, and not, not have to fight its way all the way back to the 1900 peak of 2011. Uh, so I agree with her, but I suspect she's going to find she's right, but uh, was, gave it too much time. Yeah, I, I don't really know what her thoughts are on that, but and I can't remember exactly. But it, it caught my attention, and it seems to me, were you talking about the sort of major catastrophic event that could take place? You could be looking at, you know, interest rates popping up, uh, the Fed not being able to do anything about it because if they try to tighten up like Volcker did in two thousand in nineteen eighty, it would, you know, it would just really cause uh, tremendous carnage immediately, uh, and so. You know, a loss of confidence in in the system probably is what could cause gold to what if for whatever reason could cause gold to rise to very rapidly to new highs. Mm-hmm. I suppose. Yes, it, uh, it could probably be any number of things. Uh, you know, I could probably you and I could sit and chat about it and figure out yeah. three things, mm-hmm. uh, and it might be a combination thereof. But uh, the pressures have been put in place where uh, the distortions are so great now that once they come unraveled, and it, you know, one one major asset class, let's say the commodity uprising, I call it. Uh, mm-hmm. When food joins uh, oil and gold, uh, that's going to be noticeable, and it's going to have a total, it, it'll cause investors and analysts especially to revamp totally their vista of price future in this asset category or that asset, that asset category because of the commodity price inflation that suddenly springs on them. 
So the bottom line, Michael, as, uh, as we're running out of time here, is that investors want to be positioned for this major earthquake that's going to take place when these shifts, right. when these plates shift and give way. And we want to be probably... We tend probably, to argue unleveraged. You know, we tend to argue, yeah. don't, don't go in like a futures trader and use tenfold leverage. Oh, absolutely. I agree. You've got to be gradualistic, incrementalistic, build your position slowly, uh, preferably a cash-type position, because these moves are going to be big, even if they're unleveraged. Uh, yeah. That's our, yeah, our view. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Keep out of debt and uh, and just go with cash and so forth. Yeah, very good, very good advice. Well, thank you very much, Michael. Um, I really appreciate you being with us, and we'll look to do it again as often as possible every week, whenever we can. Thank you so much. Well, folks, don't go away. We're going to be coming up next after the break, Don Cox. He's a highly regarded and well-known market analyst, uh, years at BMO and other major institutions, uh, known perhaps better in Canada, but very well, highly regarded wherever he's been and wherever he's done work. So don't go away. We're really honored to have Don Cox with us right after the break. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network new legacy gold is expanding its iceberg gold deposit in the cortez gold trend of mining friendly nevada which is the fifth largest gold mining jurisdiction in the world new legacy's deposit is a carlin style gold deposit which can be some of the largest and most profitable gold deposits anywhere new legacy's largest shareholders include major gold mining companies oceana gold and barrett gold corp the world's largest gold mining company new legacy is well funded and professionally managed and we invite you to visit our website to learn more newlegacygold.com that's n-u-l-e-g-a-c-y gold.com again n-u-l-e-g-a-c-y acygold.com Ariane Phosphate is the owner of the world's largest greenfield phosphate project. Unlike other fertilizer nutrients such as potash and nitrogen, phosphate is in deficit in most areas of the world, including right here in North America. It has no substitute and is necessary if we're to grow our crops. Unlike the Middle East and North Africa, which controls most of the world's phosphate, Ariane is situated in mining-friendly Quebec and, once in production, will reduce North America's growing reliance on foreign supply. With a market cap representing just 4% of its $2 billion NPV, Ariane may be the answer to growth in investors' portfolios while ensuring the safety of our food supply. Ariane, D-A-N on the TSXV and E-R-R-S-F in the U.S. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. 
Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased and honored to have with me for the first time Don Cox. Don Cox is, well, he's very well known in Canada, I think perhaps somewhat less known in the United States, but uh, a household name in Canada for sure. He is a a strategist and an investor. I mean, he's a lawyer. Um, He studies history. He's a astute economist. Um, He loves music and literature, the classics. Um, and he's been in the business, uh, in the financial arena for uh, some 40 years. So it's just really, really a pleasure to have Don Cox with us today. Thank you for joining me, Don. My pleasure. Really good to have you. I mean, I can't, I can't believe you're on my show. I think um, we, we thank Laura Stein, who's a, a connection with many, many guests that we've had, uh, a wonderful lady who we've known for some time, and uh, she connected you with me, so we're really pleased about that. Uh, you know, though, I'm not as pleased about the fact that you are no longer managing a, a couple of commodity funds. Uh, at, at, uh, they were under the BMO umbrella, I believe. Um, what happened there? I mean, is it just a difference of opinion in terms of markets and where we where you should yeah. be positioned, or, or what? What was it, Don? Yeah, the Cox Commodity Strategy Fund uh, was um, a very highly ranked fund, but it didn't fit in with um, BMO's longer range plans, and uh, so uh, uh, they were they were closed, and that was just uh, a couple of weeks ago, and so uh, um, everybody got their money back. Um, but uh, because we had a huge exposure to gold stocks in the Cox Commodity Strategy Fund, uh, the first six months of this year were pretty lustrous. Yeah. Yes, you could th- be thankful for that. And so your your people got their money back, and at least they didn't get hurt. And, uh, well, I mean, if uh, our previous guest, Michael Oliver, is right, we're, we're moving uh, towards some real strong bull markets in the commodities, Michael believes, perhaps with the agri-commodities being the, the last to join. But he, he, he made a call, started talking about major plate tectonic changes in the middle of last year, started calling for the precious metals and commodities uh, and uh, and a decline in the equity markets and the bond markets eventually, uh, and he believes that you know all those things are sort of the stocks and bonds bearish, uh, uh, precious metals and commodities bullish. Do you are you uh, of a similar mind at this point in time? Well, uh, at the moment, um, I'm uh, <coughs> a um, neutral on most commodities simply mm-hmm. because um, we've had. Tremendous growing weather, and we've got more grain on hand now uh, than we've ever had in the history of humanity, and that is in reserves. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we have, in the case of oil, uh, we, uh, we got our funds out of oil stocks when, <clears throat> as a result of conversations I had with um, Saudi people, I concluded that they were going to try to block the Iran deal with the U.S. by uh, driving down oil prices mm-hmm. and that they would only uh, put on any cons- kind of constraints uh, when it was clear that they couldn't do anything more on Iran. So we uh, only got back into the oil stocks uh, basically this year, but it's still it's close. And, and frankly, because the, the global economy is softening so much, those commodities that are subject to supply and demand uh, are are going to be, um, you know, uh, pretty tough. So 
the the emphasis, um, in my view, is very much in the precious metals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I listened to a podcast uh, at your website, and I should mention that to my listeners. It's uh, coxadvisors.com. Uh, I guess our listeners are free to go there and, and follow your yep. work, Don? Yep. Okay, coxadvisors.com. And there's a wonderful uh, podcast that you did uh, giving your, your view on the markets. And, uh, and I believe this was back in um, maybe August sometime, um, I believe, is the la- when that was posted. So obviously your, your views could have changed a bit. I think you had indicated you were somewhat bullish on oil at that time and the oil stocks were doing better. But you noted, uh, and you were bullish on it, but you said unless the global economy gets weaker, your views on that, uh, Don, do you, do you see? I mean, I, I, it's hard for me to be optimistic about the global economy now, but do you see any, uh, any green shoots anywhere? Uh, no, no, I, I don't, because uh, <clears throat> we, we're coming into winter in the northern hemisphere, and uh, one of, uh, if you look back at the Fed's forecasts, now they've had five years of being wrong for the year, but the quarter of the year in which they're most wrong is always the winter. <laughs> and um, so um, that now uh, you can't draw a great, great conclusion from that, except that um, there's no doubt about it that uh, the U.S. consumer, if they aren't vacationing in uh, Florida or Arizona, uh, is more constrained in the, in the first quarter. And we'll have just come out of an extremely painful election with a residue of bitterness of the kind that I've not seen in my career. I started out working at National Review with William F. Buckley back oh. uh, in the 60s, and I was on the masthead of National Review as a, uh, a Canadian uh, correspondent for 25 years. So uh, i deeply into American politics and uh, got to know, through him, I got to know Margaret Thatcher, and so I'm laying out my biases on this. And what, mm-hmm. it, what uh, concerns me is that there is such bitterness, and there's also uh, a situation where uh, Mrs. Clinton has been pulled very far to the left. I think that this is going to leave, uh, at the very least, a bad taste in consumers' mouths. It's also going to um, stimulate, I think, uh, bad behavior by bad people abroad. Um, you know, the cat's away, the mouse will play. Yeah. So I don't see that there's going to be anything out there in the next six months of a kind that will be um, really good for commodities except the precious metals. Mm-hmm. The bitter taste in your mouth. And, and you know, I mean, you, you talked about in your podcast, uh, about this growing dissension of the middle class and you talked about Brexit and some things going on in Italy and uh, the Donald Trump uh, and and uh, Bernie Sanders phenomenon. Could you share with us your thoughts on, on those connecting dots? Yes, I think that um, what we're seeing here is something that is I think your listeners should really be aware of that this is tied in to something serious that's happened in history. Um, And back in the 20s, a French philosopher uh, wrote a book about La Trahison des Clercs, that's the French name for it, which is the betrayal of the clerisy. And he was talking at that time about how the intellectual class 
was letting down people, and this was after World War One, mm-hmm. and he saw that this was going to lead to bad effects because what you were going to have was divisions between the classes in a way they'd be united in the wars in each country, but now that they were going going to be um, torn apart, and it was going to stimulate uh, very toxic politics, things like that. Well, this mm-hmm. is what we've been having in the last three years. Um, and the Brexit vote um, is a sign that Britain move, has been moving away. We know what's happening uh, in the Eurozone, where once again uh, the elites uh, are being separated from the populace. And then we have this extraordinary American election where Hillary Clinton at one point said to a union group, I can't understand why I'm not 50 points ahead. And a lot of people would agree with that. Mm-hmm. But that's the point. If, um, if she's not 50 points ahead, let's say she wins by what the polls say, six points. Mm-hmm. And this is the most unlikely candidate ever to run for president of the United States. <laughs> right. And, uh, and so uh, what, what does this tell you? This tells you that there's a deep fissure developing within American society between uh, the academic elites uh, and what they're doing in the universities then to create um, all kinds of, of new divisions. And so what you've got then is something uh, that uh, we've not had in the United States previously. And so therefore it's going to take a long time for that particular wound to heal. And therefore, I, I think this is a time where we're more vulnerable, therefore, uh, to a, an economic setback, because this will not be a time where people feel like spending money freely because they're so embittered. And remember, for so many of them, their view is that, that Hillary will be forced into radicalism and worse things to happen. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the case, but what we have is that any time that a society loses those almost mystical bonds between the groups. Mm-hmm. I mean, they stand together when there's a crisis. Uh, we better not have any kind of crisis in the next year because those bonds uh, in this country are fragile now and there is a bitterness. There are accusations being made of a kind that you and I both know have never been made in an election campaign before. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's very deep. I, I just think that uh, the middle class, uh, to such a great extent, has been losing traction, has been losing their, their standard of living, their incomes. Uh, what do you make about the arguments that Donald Trump talks about how, you know, the good jobs have been exported? I mean, you, you have been a, uh, had been, like most of us, uh, the, you know, most of us have been taught, hey, free markets and, and international trade is a good thing. Uh, you made some comments on your last podcast about how you've changed your thoughts a little bit, at least in, with respect to some of the trade agreements, I suppose. I, I, I would find it hard to believe that you're not in favor of free trade amongst nations. But but where do you stand on that? And, and does Donald Trump have anything, uh, is he is he all, at all on the right track when he when he talks about good jobs being lost? I mean, I can say, say as someone who came from Ohio and uh, sort of the what's now the Rust Belt, in the 1950s and 1960s, it was a pretty thriving place as, as uh, you know, heavy industry was still producing, kicking out a lot of goods and exports and so forth. But what are your thoughts on, on that issue? Does Donald Trump have any, have any merit in that argument? Well, yes, the answer is that he has merit about the 
United States failure to make sure that the terms of the trade deals were enforced. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, free trade, uh, look, uh, I know Robert Gordon, a great economist, he's published a book which and it, uh, on, that changes a lot of people's views, but he pointed out that from the year to 3000, uh, 325 A.D. to the year uh, uh, 1770, uh-huh. uh, global GDP did not increase. In the next two centuries, global t- GDP increased by a factor of over 150 times. What's wow. the difference between? The difference in between was we started off with free trade, then with capitalism, then with inventions, and inventions which spun off and created new wealth. We haven't seen this happening uh, in, in recent years. So free trade was a gigantic generator of wealth and progress. But what's happened because of electronic technology, which makes it very difficult for companies and governments to maintain secret uh, material, which means that therefore companies uh, you know, invest a huge amount in getting new products, they get patents, but those, uh, what we see is that foreigners can go in and steal those things, and therefore what we don't have are the enforcement mechanisms to enforce what is a really wonderful idea. Mm-hmm. And of course, like the question of if you take the police forces out of a section of a city, you shouldn't be surprised if the crime rate goes up. Does that, <laughs> does that mean that the city is prone to crime? No. It means that part of the structure that makes the city work is impaired. And we, uh, that's my reservation. And so um, he, he is, uh, he's a blunderbuss approach on this. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, uh, when you're talking to a lot of people who say, why is it we're losing out? It does no good to simply say we're going to get a new big TPP treaty, treaty in, right. at this time. Uh, so that's, uh, I think that reinforces the splits in society. And the reason Britain pulled out, of course, um, out of Europe is because there it's uh, quite the reverse. It's that they are, they are being enforced at regulations on them at an unbelievable pace. Boris Johnson, who's a really brilliant guy, pointed out that 68% of all legislation passed in the British um, uh, Houses of Parliament in the last three years is simply putting into law regulations prepared by committees in the Eurozone. And Mm -hmm. he said they're out of control. And he even pointed out that last year they passed a law making it illegal to have different sizes of condoms in Britain because they'd come up with a Euro condom, one size fits all. (laughs) And so the Parliament had to pass a law like that. Now, that shows you what happens when you get one segment of society that's not answerable to anybody, Mm -hmm. that can change the rules. So what I think is, when we're talking about why it is the economy isn't doing so well and everything, in the Eurozone, you've got these exploding regulations, and over here, people no longer have the same faith they have that the government is going to protect them. So this makes it open for cynicism, and uh, all of this means pessimism. Mm -hmm. It also means that the um, people tend to then 
put their money into what they think is the most obvious. So that's one of the reasons why we have the, um, the, stock, the stock market outperforming, <clears throat> uh, if you just buy the, uh, the index that you outperform. Yeah. Because these are the companies that are well-placed, they buy back their own stock, and uh, they're, what they're not doing is taking risks. Uh, so there's, there's so many things that are corroding the DNA of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Those are things, why it is, frankly, it's one of the reasons why I believe you've got to look at precious metals. Because gold, you see, doesn't need any of this. Gold has always been around. It can't be duplicated. And what it does is it's always the thing that says you can always trust this when you aren't sure what else you can trust. And you may say, well, that's a pure psychological attitude. Yes, but all valuations fundamentally become psychological. You've got to have some concept before you get enthusiastic or negative about things. You should have Mm -hmm. facts for them, but the way you're drawn to something is your own set of priorities about what it matters to you most and what matters to you least. Well, with respect to the destruction of capitalism, uh, we've had David Stockman on this show a number of times, and and you know he makes the point, and I, I would just like to get your your response to this. He makes the point that you know how can you have capitalism if you don't allow price discovery of capital? That is, if the central banks manipulate the uh, the markets for capital, driving down interest rates to some whatever perceived level they should be for whatever purposes that the people that sit around those big tables in Washington think they should be. I mean, does he have a point? Absolutely. Because that when you take away uh, the interest rate mechanism, what you do is you are doing something big. You know, Einstein said the most powerful force in the universe is the law of compound interest. Mm-hmm. Now, when you go down to negative interest rates, this is the equivalent of what happened, uh, but they overcame it, which with when they went to jet planes, marvelous British film, uh, Breaking the Sound Barrier, about one of the developers, and he was killed flying a, a, an early jet plane. They found out there was a sound barrier because when they broke through it, the plane broke up, so they had to come up with different technologies to deal with an invisible barrier. So what we're doing now, or the Eurozone, there's 12 trillion uh, negative-yielding bonds. And these, these economists, these, uh, we are ruled by a new ruling class of PhDs in economics. Back as far as the French Revolution, Edmund Burke, the great British philosopher of the time, says we have too many economists. He was saying <laughs> that in 1793. Well, now what we have is the Federal Reserve itself is made up as PhDs in economics. It used to have, in the Open Market Committee, lots of bankers on it. No, 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 no. So we needed those elites to rescue us back in the crash, which was created by other elites, elites PhDs in physics, who were called in to design these complex mortgage ba- uh, products, which it turned out nobody understood, and they blew up. So there's another example where what you have is an elite group which is not responsive to the public, and the public even doesn't even know about them much. And what they have, it's not that they're crooks. Uh, it's not that they have evil intent or a yeah. hidden agenda. It's that they have too much power accorded to them, 
in a system that is much more complex than they understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, they've been led to believe that the models, the Keynesian models they were brought up with or would serve them well. And it seems to me, Don, that they can't really bring themselves to ever admit that maybe they were wrong. I mean, uh, I, I don't know your position on this, but it certainly seems as though the 1930s remedies uh, were not very effective. They certainly didn't uh, didn't work very well for quite a while. And yet we tried to do the same thing. Uh, Mr. Bernanke promised Milton Friedman uh, before Friedman passed away that he, they wouldn't make the same mistakes again. This time, by golly, they're going to fix it for sure. You know, and then comes along 2008, 2009, and Don, we're in worse shape than we've ever been using the same but more of the same policies. Would you agree? Well, I think there's twists. What um, what they did not do uh, was make the, the error that had been made uh, in the Depression time, uh, which was to reduce the money supply growth. Uh-huh. This time, what they did, so we lived up to that promise, this yeah. time... They expanded the money supply exponentially in a way that Milton Friedman could never have imagined. So what they did was, in their ardor to escape making the mistake that was made in 1931, they've come up with this one, which nobody had thought about, that if that you could quadruple the Fed's balance sheet, leading mm-hmm. eventually to negative interest rates and all of these uh, new formulations. But what you can say is they didn't make the same mistake. But what happened in each case was that the Federal Reserve became at the center of the system so that the system didn't have its own uh, built-in ways of dealing with the problem. It was all being managed by some elites. Yeah. And so uh, it's, I'm not against elites. I mean, for example, in medical science, you better have an elite doctor. Sure. But I am I'm against elites who are not really directly responsive to the public and who don't have, uh, there's not one of them that ever had to meet a payroll. Yeah, no, that's right. That's a good point. Don, with just about a minute left yet, uh, we had, uh, I observed that uh, Heidi Richardson at uh, BlackRock a couple of weeks ago, I think it was on Bloomberg, uh, very bullish on gold, and and she's suggesting we might see a new high within two years or so. Do you think that's a, a possibility? Yeah, because... Remember, major gold bull, bull and bear markets aren't driven by believers in gold. They're driven no. by the exits and entrance into gold and gold mining stocks. Of true believers in bonds and stocks is the only routes to financial security and prosperity. So uh, when it's people that give up on the other alternatives, when they're forced into it, they come in. And that's why we had this preposterous situation where with Greece being forced out of the, they thought, out of the European Union, we had a $400 move in gold over a 2% move in the European Union. Something yeah. like that is going to happen where yeah. people are forced out of the conventional assets, and that's going to certainly happen within the next two years. All right. It could happen in the next six months, but uh, i got a book coming out on gold, and yes. we're looking at that. So Okay, well... Don, when you have that ready, we want to have you back and and talk about that a little bit more. We're out of time right now. Uh, So thank you very much for being with us, and and we'll look to have you back again sometime in the near future if possible. Thank you very much. Well, folks, that is all the time we have. Next week, Rick Rule, John Rubino, and Peter Talman of Klondike Gold will be with us. That's all for now. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.
New Legacy Gold is expanding its iceberg gold deposit in the Cortez Gold trend of mining-friendly Nevada, which is the fifth largest gold mining jurisdiction in the world. New Legacy's deposit is a Carlin-style gold deposit, which can be some of the largest and most profitable gold deposits anywhere. New Legacy's largest shareholders include major gold mining companies Oceana Gold and Barrett Gold Corp., the world's largest gold mining company. New Legacy is well-funded and professionally managed, and we invite you to visit our website to learn more. NewLegacyGold.com. That's N-U-L-E-G-A-C-Y-Gold.com. Again, N-U-L-E-G-A-C-Y-Gold.com. Novo Resources focuses on the exploration and development of gold projects. Its flagship asset is the Beaton's Creek Gold Project in Western Australia, where it is currently processing a 30,000-ton bulk sample. Novo also controls 100% interest in the Blue Speck Gold Antimony Project, where it is conducting a 10,000-meter drill program. The company has over $7 million in cash and enjoys strong shareholder support from the likes of Eric Sprott and Newmont Mining. It trades in Canada and the U.S. under the symbols NVO and NSRPF respectively.